Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. The Chinese landscape is dramatically changing. Modernization has drastically altered Chinese infrastructure, urban zones, waterways, and even rural spaces. These changes have also affected Chinese burial practices and the resting places of the deceased. In The Chinese Deathscape, Grave Reform in Modern China, published with Stanford University Press, collaborators explore the various histories of the modern loss of Chinese burial space. The edited project is part of Stanford University Press's commitment to digital humanities, which are cutting-edge, peer-reviewed, born digital volumes. Contributors can buy narrative analysis, visualize data, and dynamic maps with exceptional ease to introduce readers to infant burial practices in late imperial China, grave and cemetery relocation in Shanghai from the 19th and 20th centuries, and grave relocation during the contemporary period. In my conversation with editor Thomas Mullaney, we discuss common Chinese burial practices, the logics behind grave relocation, using historical data with interactive maps, the prehistory of absence, the importance of Stanford University Press and its digital humanities efforts, and the relationship between researcher and developers. I'm one of your co-hosts, Christian Peterson, and thanks again for listening to New Books in Religion. Without any further delay, here's my conversation with Thomas Mullaney about the Chinese deathscape, grave reform in modern China. Welcome, Tom. Thanks for joining me on New Books in Religion. I'm excited to talk about this project, Chinese Deathscape. Um, And since you're a uh, frequent guest on uh, the New Books Network, I I know you know the drill. Um, We always start with a little bit about our authors, uh, since you've introduced yourself in more full ways uh, in other conversations. Um, perhaps you can just tell us a little bit about uh, the type of research you do um, and then where this project, uh, the Chinese Deathscape, kind of fits in with your your broader questions you like to ask about uh, Chinese society. Well, thanks for having me and, you know, for being interested in in my work. And it's always it's always very exciting to, to be, um, you know, have a conversation on the New Books Network and yeah, so, uh, you know, I think it's always a challenging um, thing to step outside yourself and, and ask that very question, what kind of, you know, what kind of research do I do? And um, I guess on the face of it, uh, and from what I've heard from, from colleagues is that it's, <laughs> it's not an easily discerned pattern. My first book was, uh, on the surface, was about uh, ethnic minorities in China and how the Chinese Communist State categorized them and uh, into formal, you know, bureaucratic categories of identity. The second monograph was on uh, the history of the Chinese typewriter and other forms of information technologies. And then this newest uh, volume, which is an uh, it's a peer-reviewed, born digital volume, but it's an edited volume. And as you noted, it's um, about well, it's focused on the the digging up and relocation of human remains, of corpses um, and burial remains in in China. And um, I think 
so what you know what kind of connects <laughs> those things <laughs> i mean i think in in one sense uh one set of questions that i have always been concerned with which probably connect the first two projects that i just mentioned uh explicitly um has to do with language uh has to do with world making has to do with categorization um and uh and 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 the intersection of those of those things so i guess the first the first book uh for anyone that has not read it they wouldn't they wouldn't necessarily know that the history of linguistics is is front and center in that book because um you know, for reasons that I describe in that book, uh, language, the languages that different minorities spoke became the principal identifier or feature of, of quote unquote culture that the Chinese communists and their, their social science advisors used in order to sort the people of China out. And so I, I go into the, the history of comparative linguistics and historical linguistics. Um, and, uh, and then you know, but on the face of it, it's a book about minority, ethnicity, and identity, and so. But really, it's I think it's a it's a history of the social sciences, but um, in particular, it's a it's a history of how the social sciences, in concert with state power, uh, has the capacity to try to shape the world in the image of the map, so to speak, or the image of the description of the world, and that's. That's why I say I've I've been interested in in world making. Um, so uh, by comparison, you know, if I say I'm interested in the history of linguistics, then then seemingly I should be satisfied by writing a book about you know a biography of some prominent linguist, whether in China or elsewhere. And, and while I think that's interesting, I would never want to do that. Um, it's it's the particular combination of uh, the history of history of knowledge and knowledge production in concert with world makers, I guess, and world breakers, and what that particular combination um, has the power to do, which is often, you know, I mean, from my standpoint, it's, uh, it's terrifying, <laughs> as just as a human being on earth to think about that. And the, the typewriter, well, the language part is much, much ob more obvious, because it's, uh, you know, the whole book is about language technologies. And, um, and writing technologies. I, I should say I'm really, I'm really drawn to writing and script and orthography and um, all sorts of, you know, notational systems, graphic systems. Uh, for some reason, that's always spoken to me as a, as a human being. Uh, and in this case, the world part is a little bit different. In the case of the Chinese typewriter, the world that has been made by the combination of engineers and social scientists and state and corporate power is not the Chinese Communist Party um, like it is in my first book. Rather, it's Brooklyn, New York, and the Mergenthaler Linotype Company, and IBM, and Remington, and Underwood, and these these just at, in their time and place these mega mega important corporations who were remaking the world in the image of well, in this case, alphabet centered technologies. And so, the Chinese typewriter as an object, as a pursuit for all of these different people that were attracted by this puzzle, how do you build a Chinese typewriter? It was, okay, it was, a, it was, the puzzle of it is, okay, the world is being made in a certain way that fundamentally excludes a quarter of humanity in terms of their writing system. 
how can we, we can't, we don't have the power to uh, compete with that world making, you know, this China turn of the century is in no position to make the world and it's to remake the world in its image or fight, fight the fight. And, you know, against these corporate colonial juggernauts, but instead it's how do we kind of world make or make worlds inside these worlds uh, such that we can not only survive and thrive, but as the story goes on, and I carry this on into the second book that's coming out soon, um, almost remake the world from within. I, I, the, the metaphor that often comes to mind is from Weitzi, from from Go, the the, the board game, and uh, you know, I, I'm not. I should I should say outright, I've, I'm fascinated by the game. I'm I'm terrible at it. I couldn't a you know a preschooler, but you know, there's certain principles of it I understand. And one of them that I've always been most fascinated is that you can watch two people play and it really looks like either white or black is surrounding the other and therefore is on par to, you know, on, on pace to just sweep the board. Uh, and then some, suddenly you realize and the opponent realizes that, in fact, being surrounded uh, when you surround somebody, you are also being surrounded at the same time. And if the opponent in that story can figure that out, it's possible to flip the uh, flip the advantage, let's say, and suddenly, just in, in, in just in a few moves, the the side that was really surrounding and seemingly on pace to make the world completely in its image is actually sort of surrounded by something that they didn't see coming. And that kind of so there's again world making language and technology. So um, now, uh, what's funny is that I mean, funny for me, it's not like haha funny Netflix series funny, but it's um, is that all of those projects like the Chinese typewriter, um, Chinese computer, those that you know, basically my second and what will be my third monograph if I'm allowed to live that long is um, we're all triggered or let's say born out of a set of concerns right at the end of grad school and into the beginning of my, um, when I became assistant professor at Stanford. So like 2005, six timeframe. And I started to become obsessed and I now really am obsessed with, um, with disappearance and extinction and, um, alienation and, uh, ruin. Um, and, but in particular, I found myself around that time becoming fascinated, concerned with what I have come to call for myself, a kind of terminology, intransitive disappearance, as opposed to transitive disappearance. So this is the sort of transitive, intransitive sense of the subject, verb, object. So we all know about, <clears throat> you know, transitive forms of disappearance. This is book burning. This is censorship. This is genocide. This is um, clear cutting of forests. This is the bombardment of a town. And, but it also could be something like this is the volcano, you know, erupting and blanketing and, and erasing a town off the map by blanketing it in, you know, molten ash, uh, Whatever it could also be accidental, well, semi-accidental things like the burning of the Library of Alexandria, and all of these kinds of. What I became concerned with, and I don't know exactly why, around that time, were forms of disappearance that 
seem that require no agents of disappearance or certainly no singular agents of disappearance in order to to take place. So these are these are forms of of going away basically that do not have a clear subject acting upon a certain object. And you know, I can give you I can give you one example that's kind of funny and I I I uh, I don't think it's apocryphal. I think it's I think it's true. But in in Montreal, on the license plate, you know, like license plates have mottos. One of the mottos, or maybe the motto, in um, Quebec, as I understand it, is "Je me souviens." I remember. So it's sort of some. But the funny thing is, is that if you ask what exactly is being remembered, no one clearly remembers anymore what is being remembered, and it's debated. Some people think it's that it's, I, I can't, I can't go through the inventory, but there are competing theories about what exactly that phrase was even originally meant to mean. And, um, so, uh, and then a, a more striking or more kind of, I guess, like say historically salient one would be, uh, Anyang. So, you know, the, the, the famed site whose discovery and excavation leads to the, um, let's say that the placing into, uh, corroborated human history, the idea of of uh, the so-called dragon bones and the earliest instances of Chinese characters, et cetera, et cetera. And there's so much interest in the story of discovery, excavation, um, and, and the insights that are generated by the discovery. Uh, but what I remember around uh, when I first joined Stanford, one of the first things I did was invite to campus, uh, the head of the excavation team uh, in China to come to a conference, a workshop that I was doing on disappearance. And I said, my question to you is not how, how was it discovered and not like, what are the implications of what you have found? Here's my question. How did it, how did we lose it? Because it's, it, you know, it wasn't blanketed in volcanic ash in a, in a blink of an eye it was it wasn't just rapidly and completely depopulated in, in a blink of an eye it somehow was in people still walked through it walked past it same is true of angkor wat and other kind of famous sites um but if you kind of time lapse you know take time lapse photography of these kinds of sites you would see over decades and centuries People moving through, moving through, moving through, moving through, but then at some point, uh, it's gone. And th basically, the kind of historical reconstruction of that process is what I became really concerned with. Now, this is all circuitously leading back to the Chinese deathscape. Uh, the thing is, is that if anyone has looked at the Chinese deathscape site or has even heard a description of it, they would say, well, Tom, that, that does not sound like quote unquote intransitive disappearance. That sounds like the Chinese state and real estate developers, um, you know, sending out people with backhoes to quite transitively dig up and move um, millions and millions and millions of bodies in this Really, I mean, there's no other word in the contemporary period besides like a purge. It's like a purge of the dead from the from the landscape of China, um, and 
and it's tr- and that's true. I mean, these are these are these are conscious acts. These are closer to the forms of transitive disappearance that I said I wasn't interested in. But in my in my concern as a scholar, not just as a, a citizen on Earth, a citizen of Earth, and a human being concerned with the world around us, but as a scholar in terms of the problems that I'm all over. Uh, to me, what I'm most interested in is the prehistory of the contemporary purge. And, um, and what that looks like goes a little bit as follows. Uh, you know, if, if, you, if you choose one example grave site that has been relocated uh, in contemporary China, um, one example includes one in which uh, is, you know it's it's smack dab in the middle of a of a of a town or a city road such that the road actually has to fork around the grave. Now, any rational kind of just you know rational observer would look at that grave and come to the conclusion, "Wow, that grave is in a really awkward location. Like it's it's really kind of." in the way it, it, it's, it's, it's scattered. I mean, and, and the term in Chinese about this sort of idea of, of graves being fun sun, like scattered about is used in uh, a, g- a good deal of the discourse about, you know, where all of these graves are that need to be relocated. Uh, and we have other examples of grave sites that are in the middle of real estate developments. And these are the famous like nail graves that, that real estate, you know, contractors have to build around until they finalize negotiations so, um, but so if these graves are in the way or scattered about, or they kind of seem irrationally distributed, uh, just random, well, that's a, that's a strange thing because the graves themselves never moved. So what was the process by which space moved around the graves such that after a slow accretion of time, a gestalt switch kind of triggers and suddenly the graves are in really just are in the way. Um, so I'm interested in the kind of the, the, the almost imperceptible drift about the organization of space that leads up to the moment in which it becomes possible for thousands and hundreds of thousands of individuals to arrive at a conclusion, which in their minds is totally logical and rational saying, look at, you know, look at where these graves are. They're in the middle of, they're in the middle of agro-business fields. They're in the middle of roadways. They're like under underpasses. They're on the hillside by, you know, by the canal. They're, they're like tucked behind a, a park. These, they've got to go. We've got to rationalize this. They've got to go. And the sense is, is that um, I guess, I guess the implicit claim here would be that lying, if you scratch at the surface of a purge in human history, prior to that purge, leading up to that purge, will quite likely, if perhaps always, be one or another example of this, of a kind of imperceptible drift and transformation that may have taken 100, 200 years to take shape, uh, that when the purge begins, we write out of history. We forget that that drift ever happened, and it's just um, it's just sort of in the way. And um, I mean, when I was at Johns Hopkins as an undergrad, I remember that on the engineering quad there is a uh, a sundial, 
like in the, I remember there's a sun was it the engineering quad somewhere on campus there's a there's a sundial so it's a you know it's a, it's a circular metallic piece fastened to I think it was a stone base I can't quite remember um, and but the but the but the interesting thing about it is that it's like it's a dead sundial because at some point along the way buildings were built around it such that it never permits the sun to reach the sundial and so now the you know the sundial hasn't moved but it no longer is what it was because of the drift and the transformation of space around it. And so, you know, basically for me, the Graves Project, my, my chapter within the Graves Project and my desire to learn more about what's happening with it is sort of a, I, I can, I've never done mountaineering or anything, but I think, I think of it as almost like a base camp that I'm setting up for my, my brain, um, to try to prepare for an ascent and the ascent uh, is the project that I've been sort of quietly or secretly working on for about 15 years, which is this question of how do we disappear? Um, and this is my first, you know, I have other forays into it, but it's a project that is more intelligent than I am, and I need to stage myself in order to do it the way I want to. So the summary is I study taxonomy and taphonomy. Uh, so taxonomy, everyone knows, taphonomy, an archaeological term, meaning the, the taphos, grave, nomos, the law of, so the law of how things enter the grave. So this is you know, a terminology that refers to what happens to um, what happens to s how does something enter or not enter the fossil record? Uh, and so, I taphonomy is my number one concern, but it is far far more difficult to study than taxonomy. So I think, but they're related. Taxonomy and taphonomy are inseparable. So I think that my brain has been just choosing more more doable and reasonable kinds of projects in a sort of training regimen to get me ready to, again, if I'm permitted to do this job for as long as I'd like to, to transition into working on taphonomy in the way that I want to, because I don't want to write a philosophical treatise on it. I want to write an empirical study of disappearance. But the challenge of that is disappearance is such a thing that devours its own sources. So how do you, how do you write a source-based history of disappearance is, is going to be the challenge. Yeah, so uh, I mean, so much there to unpack. Um, but but thinking about this project specifically, um, and especially some of the, the visualization that you do, uh, it's a really good description um, of you know working through the maps and the data as they're visualized. Um, you know, I don't think you explicitly said it in this way, in this idea of disappearance and this kind of prehistory to a current moment. But you really get that effect when you when you operate through the web interface. So um, because that is kind of central to understanding this project in its current formulation, um, help us understand this, right? Some people are, you know, people are familiar with a book uh, without seeing it, but um, as a digital publication, you combine narrative analysis, you, you have visual data, visualized data, um, dynamic maps. So, uh, what are the methods one uses to do a project like this? Uh, how do you incorporate the data? Uh, where does it come from? 
Um, how do you navigate the web interface? Um, you know, you have a lot of experience with digital humanities beyond this project. So could, could you just kind of uh, think about your project within this kind of broader um, kind of movement into digital humanities and, and what it brings us? Absolutely. Uh, well, the first thing I want to do is is really give credit where credit is due. So the platform, the chief, cons, you know, architect and engineer of the uh, of the um, the Deskgate platform, which has since been um, has since been sort of nicknamed Grapple. Uh, I don't. You know, there's always a it's always a desire to name things, uh, but um, is David McClure, and he uh, was we had the benefit of having him here at Stanford for a number of years. He's now moved um, he's now moved to MIT to actually to complete his PhD. Uh, he's just he's a wunderkind guru, any name you want to put, um, and the platform. If anyone has a chance, if any of the listeners do end up looking at the site, I, I, I would expect and I would hope that actually the first reaction some might have is, well, this looks kind of simple, meaning this looks kind of straightforward. There's just text. There's a text panel on the left side. There are effectively hyperlinks embedded in the text. And when I click on a hyperlink, it dynamically shifts the map around. But, you know, that's kind of Google Mapsy, isn't it? And the answer is no. <laughs> the answer is meaning that the elegance and simplicity of what David and and I and there's a you know a team here and 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 I, I I do hope that anyone that goes to the site the very first place they'll go is the is the people page to see how many people were really involved in this. But um, the the elegance of that is the achievement of it. There is to this point never been a platform that so simply and seamlessly connects uh, narrative and argumentation with um, with a map. And what's more than that, also the ability of a map with um, overlaid demographic data, with overlaid historic georectified maps, um, with a timeline slider that allows you to you know, limit uh, the the data points you're seeing by time, et cetera, et cetera. And um, the effect of all of it in, in my mind is, uh, I guess, I guess two or threefold, let's say. One is that the, the as you move through an argument, you are never not in and not, rem- you, you are never not in space. You are constantly being, reminded and grounded in a particular location on planet earth and it um it contributes to a slightly different form of writing than many of us are used to uh, as compared to uh print publications so in print publications you know let's say a journal article well there is no journal on the face of the planet that's going to allow you to embed or to include 100 maps in a you know in a 10,000 word piece and and so instead, what you're supposed to do, the convention has always been, if you want to reference mo- multiple places, please put them into one map and then place that at a particular, the, the most logical place in the text. And then in your text, simply say, see map one or see, and then you can do that as many times as you want. Um, 
And so you kind of have to freeze, you know, our convention has long been, you constantly, you have to freeze uh, a particular snapshot of a map and then place that in. And, um, and so, you know, that, that, you know, a sentence might be uh, phenomenon X that we're discussing is evident in places one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, C map one. And then you have a map that has some sort of map of China, map of Asia, whatever it might be with seven dots on it. And it's, and it's, it's necessarily a fixed way to relate between space and place. And then the second you turn the, the, the page of the book or the page of the article, the map is gone. Like you, you have to physically flip back and look at it. And most people don't do that. And so you're once again, are away from space or not reminded where you are in space. The beauty of the platform is that uh, if you're talking about a phenomenon that shows up in seven places, you have the power to slow down the narrative and actually walk us through those seven places because um, the map will dynamically, if you, as long as you put the backend programming in, which is very simple, it's a very basic HTML backend, uh, HTML style markup backend, so very, very straightforward uh, to edit. Um, you can take your time and move us through a spatial argument that if you were going to try to do the same thing in print would require that you have seven distinct maps uh, which is again over the limit, and not only that, but to recreate the art, to recreate the essays by Christian Ario in the in the in the volume, or by Jeff Snyder Reinke or myself, if you wanted to do that in print, and do it the way the authors did it, not translate it back into the realm of print print publication, it would take I don't know I've never guessed I would say a hundred maps maybe more in order to recreate it. Um, and so, you know, for me, I, I, I um, and you can, you can also operate at, at, um, at different scales. So if, if I, if I do want to, in my piece, and I do this in a number of locations, say, you know, there are many different motivations for the relocations of graves. Some, some graves have been relocated um, in order to, you know, the, the reason cited include airport construction or the construction of schools or the construction of uh, um, oil refineries or whatever. And with very simple markup, I can tell the platform that when someone clicks on this particular link, not only do I want it to bring them to a particular place, but I want them to zoom out to a level five or a level six zoom so that we can see all of Eastern China. But then the very next uh, the very next link, I might be making a point about a particular village or a county. And then I would very simple markup say, relocate to this place on the map. But also I want you to go to zoom level 12. And I want you to bring this, bring this really close to the, to, to, to home. And it suddenly you, you there's a mixture of suddenly you're becoming half a writer and half a cinematographer. And you actually have to ask yourself like, what, how should I shoot this scene? Um, and it just, it, it just brings out all these different dimensions of the research process, of the writing process. But um, as a platform, and again, coming back to this, as a platform, it does not scream, look at me. I'm so, you know, I'm so neat. Look at all my bells and whistles. It actually is incredibly understated. Um, 
and, and kind of classic and elegant in that sense. So, um, yeah, it was, it, you know, it was an interesting process because I think for all of us, all of the contributors in the volume, when we first wrote our draft pieces, our draft pieces, it's very funny, I think, um, and I don't think anyone would be embarrassed to, <clears throat> for me to say this because it's just a natural thing. All three of us sort of wrote our first drafts of our essays as if it was going to end up in a, in a printed book. And so as the editor, one thing I had to do to myself, but I also had to work with um, my, my co-contributors to say, okay, I understand that this sentence is exactly what you would want for a print publication, but for this platform, can we actually let this breathe a little bit? Can we take all of these data points and not just shove them into one sentence, but distribute them more evenly across a paragraph or across a section? Because we want to make the most of what the platform offers us, um, again, sort of cinematographically, narratively, but also in terms of argumentation. And it was a really, it was, it was, I've, I've, I've done a lot of, you know, guest editorships with journals and I've edited volumes and done conferences. This was like a totally different kind of editorial process. Um, and it was really fun. It was, it was, uh, it, 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 you know, it, it was, I don't know. I can't. I can't quite describe it. It was saying, you know, your argument is great, and I have, and I, and I, I think you have, you have nailed this, and you have, you have more than demonstrated your point. The question I have for you is, how do we want to shoot this scene? And let's talk about that. In essence, so it, it brought out a different dimension of the editorial process as well. I've probably wandered very far from your original question, so please do bring me back to no, that's great, old. but um. Yeah, so the, um, maybe just uh, one one more quick thing about um, kind of the the digital part of this project rather than the content part. Um, you know, so this is published through Stanford University Press, who uh, have have committed to working on uh, digital born publications, which is a really a wonderful thing. Um, perhaps you could just say briefly, you know, like you know, how would a project like this typically be? Uh, communicated to the world, published, uh, you know, for lack of a better world, uh, versus going with uh, Stanford University Press. How does how does the uh, SUP kind of what what does it do that maybe you couldn't do if you were kind of working on this just with your uh, co contributors uh, with some you know uh, funding of your own or something like that? Yeah, thank you, and I I, I hope you don't mind, but I I, I do want to I want to take that opportunity to um, I don't know when, of course, our discussion will be will be live, but um, in the time and place in which our conversation is happening right now, uh, Stanford University Press is in the news. And um, I think many people uh, know that the administration at my university at Stanford has um, made some, in my view, in the view of literally thousands of people, both at Stanford and beyond, some um, really irresponsible and unfounded statements about the press. Uh, our provost said that it's a second-rate press that has been repeated by very few people, but sort of high up. Um, there was a, uh, we have, it's since come to light that, that uh, our provost, who is a physicist, uh, well-respected in her field, but apparently completely out of touch with um, life uh, you know, half the world under her, under her purview as provost um, has just as, as, as really triggered uh, a crisis and has, and basically has threatened to, 
to cut off the already uh, ridiculously modest university support for the press. And this is, you know, this has done real damage um, to the morale of the press staff. I mean, there have been people who have written to me and I know to colleagues asking, you know, I really want to publish with SUP, but, you know, should I pull my manuscript? I mean, this is, there have been real material effects of, of, of the actions taken by our administration. Fortunately, right now, there is a profound outcry that I, I, I don't think that the provost or the administration foretold. In fact, in fact, uh, the provost followed up the initial statement about SUP and about funding um, with an email that went that was entirely public uh, that that gets sent out, and it was just a very bizarre message. It it, it expressed um, surprise, I think was the word that was used. Surprise that uh, the initial statements would have you know, elicited the, uh, the, the, the response that they did. Um, and I think for many of us, the idea that someone would have a said what was said and, and initiated a devastating process that she wanted to initiate is bad enough. But then to express that they're surprised that people were pissed off really damaged, I think the provost's reputation in the eyes of, in the eyes of many, it just really indicated how far out of touch, um, because the SUP that I know, and I'll bring, you know, I'll bring it back to my experience, but the SUP that I know and that thousands of people know is that uh, this is a first-rate press. This, has, this is a press that has you know, changed fields, created fields. It is a vital part of our ecology, not only of getting our research out there, but, but, but also it's one of the key, it's one of the bastions of, uh, of the broader ecology of of, of everything that we do, you know, the, the books that we assign our undergrads, um, the fact that PhD students write dissertations, i.e., you know, sustained works of, that are designed, uh, patterned around the book, that tenure is, tenure and promotion is tied in so many fields to, to the publication of, of books um, that depend upon rigorous peer review and that um, have have nothing to do with the idea of the profit so-called that they will, that they will generate. I mean, when is an academic advisor ever said to their PhD advisee, this is a brilliant uh, dissertation question and it's going to make a major intervention, but how many books is it going to sell on amazon.com has uh, no advisor has ever said that, nor should they ever say that. Um, so just coming back to, to SUP, uh, I mean, SUP, in terms of its print um, series, meaning its classic research monographs and edited volumes and translations that are printed in the conventional print format, um, they they do not <laughs> they do not require the, the, the we need to stand up and 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 speak out and say how powerful those lists have been, but they, they speak for themselves. But on top of that. Uh, SUP, a number of, well, not that far ago, a number of years ago, uh, was one of the very few university presses to compete for and six and, and win, uh, a highly sought after, um, uh, um, uh, basically grant or fellowship grant, I'm not sure the appropriate terminology from the Mellon foundation that was in support of peer reviewed born digital scholarly work. And it's under that aegis that SUP um, 
sort of became expressed interest in the Graves project, and uh, and then you know took on the project for well agreed to formally review the project the way that it would review any work of scholarly um, of scholarship, and this is true not only of the Chinese Deathscape but also a number of others that you can you know see on their on the SUP website. Now, as let me talk about the process of <laughs> publishing this book or this this. It's, it's, I'm always at a loss for words. This, 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 this work of scholarship with SUP. I have published um, in just my monographs, my edited volumes, and then my current contracts with university presses. Uh, just, just limited to that. There is UC Press, MIT Press, Stanford University Press, Cambridge University Press. And then if you add to that the number of presses for which I have served as outside reviewers, then we're in the, to, into the dozens. The, the process is the same. It's you know, the, the process by which a, a book or a volume is peer-reviewed um, is largely identical across most, of, most institutions um, you know, sent out for peer review, that's brought back, uh, um, and then author or editor writes a response indicating, you know, what are they going to, what, which advice will they follow? What do they challenge, et cetera. That's all bundled together by the editor who brings it to a board of one sort or another. There's further discussion and then it's voted on, you know, whether or not a contract should be issued then, whether or not some sort of revision is required, et cetera, et cetera. It's a a very, you know, the question is, the question becomes in that process um, or the distinguishing features, I think in that process are a few. One is, um, the level of rigor, how many people does a press send out a volume to? Um, and then sort of the ability to herd cats, like how good is an editor at getting outside reviewers to actually meet a deadline? Because they really don't have any power over these people. They can't, you know, if a person's late, they can't send someone to their office to break their window and say, you better turn the, you know, it's like they, they're not mafia. So, so they just, they just have, they're at the mercy of, their rapport with the broader scholarly community. That's really um, the major distinguishing features, I think, just for the process of peer review. On this account, SUP for this project, for the Chinese Deathscape, was the most rigorous, but also the most um, sort of timely process I have ever experienced. There were now I'm 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 going to fudge my numbers here because I can't remember. It's either six or seven outside reviews, and this is not because uh, it had to be sent out a second time for problems. This SUP sent out our plat our set of essays in the platform from day one to either six or seven outside reviewers. Half of them to review the argumentative substance, and you know kind of, of our, of our scholarship, and then half of them to review just the digital platform. The, now this could have been a nightmare. We could have been sitting around for seasons and years and years waiting for people to get, you know, all of these reviews in, but however they do it, whatever rapport they have clearly built with the world around them, because people admire SUP, um, and, the acquisitions editor and the main editor. So I'm thinking of people like Frederica, of Alan Harvey. Um, you know, these are deeply respected professionals. 
those reviews came in basically at deadline, which is base for anyone that knows pub- publishing is like a, it's like a miracle. Um, it's worthy of a Bible story. So I, I remember going through those, those, um, outside reviews and thinking to myself, just how grateful I was not, they had gotten me such phenomenal, critical insight and feedback and they had done it like in time. And so we, you know, we sat down, we wrote our author's response, we went through the process, et cetera, et cetera. And the volume, you know, this thing got, got so much better thanks to uh, the review process that they had set in place. So, because peer review is the whole ball game. Peer review is what distinguishes what we do um, from, you know, um, right? Just publish, put, you know, push, putting something on medium.com or, and, you know, let's be honest, let's be honest when it comes to dissertations. Who reads a dissertation and signs off on it? A dissertation is read by the dissertation committee and primarily by the advi- the main one or two advisors, which mean that. Yes, a dissertation has gone through a lot of critical feedback because oftentimes different chapters, you know, are written in the courses of of courses, and it's and you know colleagues write it, different professors weigh in at different parts. But it is not sent out for anonymous review. It is a kind of an internal affair. Um, it's only when a dissertation is taken to that next step where it is submitted to the broader scholarly community in an anonymous way that something different, let's just say, something different and far more rigorous sets in and where, you know, in the classic sense of the word, the dissertation becomes the book. Um, and, you know, there, cause there's been discussion like, well, maybe we don't need to publish any of our books. Maybe just, we'll just take our dissertations and put them in an archive and people can find them in the archive and that's enough. And, 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 you know, not every book, beca- not every dissertation becomes a book. So et cetera. It's like, yes, this is, this is all true. Not everything becomes a book, et cetera. But at the end of the day, peer review is the citadel. It is the, it is the center of what we do. Um, now who runs peer review? Who manages this most important dimension? And this is where I'm getting not just at SUP, but like university presses at large, because the attack on SUP is an attack. Let's, let's be clear. The attack on SUP by Stanford's administration is an attack on all university presses. Um, because it's a, it's a, it's conveying a belief that the real way we should measure university presses kind of quality or success or et cetera is, is its profitability. Does it make money on, on amazon.com and saying, wait a minute, you know, university presses are the institutions that manage this thing called peer review. University presses and journal editors are the people that collectively manage this completely thankless job that does not generate any income for them. That takes up an immense amount of time in which all of the documentation is effectively confidential and never sees the light of day um, in order to make everything that we do in the humanities, but even, but in many social sciences and many parts of the arts, everything above that work and function. Um, so, uh, cause there was a statement that was made at Stanford, um, a really insidious statement 
where the provost and in and with and with kind of sending out messengers was trying to convey the message um, well, which would you rather us do to fund SUP, fund the press or fund graduate students? Like we would rather give the money to graduate students. It's like, wait a minute, this is pure hypocrisy. First of all, do never, ever take an at-risk community like graduate students and turn them into a chess piece, A. But B, this is total hypocrisy because you're, you're saying that you're pro-PhD student, pro-grad student, and meanwhile, you are you are taking a major step that if it goes unchecked, will burn down, will contribute to the burning down of an ecology that grad students themselves rely on in order to, you know, start and, and set out in their profession. So, so don't tell us that this is pro-grad student. I think they were just trying out that narrative and seeing if it flew and it, it fooled nobody. Um, but so, you know, coming, coming back to this, so not only – not only does SUP simply rock in so many different ways within classic print publication, it is the it is one of the first presses on the planet to see the vit- the vital importance of peer-reviewed digital publication and then to compete and to win a major grant in support of it. So it's not just on the you know the print side; it's also in the digital side that they are they are punching way above their weight. They are competing with presses and outperforming um, presses that are funded five, ten, a hundred times more than them. Um, so it's just uh, you know I it's for any listener that you know, and I think everyone within this within the academy knows this. You know, uh, just because I'm from Stanford doesn't mean that I'm inherently connected to SUP or Stanford University Press. The relationship between a university and a university press is one of kind of, they, of course, they're related, but it's not like rooting for your football team or something like that. It's, you know, my relationship with SUP is as an independent scholar who has the option to publish with any number of different presses, hopefully, let's say. I don't, I don't have to or I'm under no obligation to go with any one or the other. Um, and so I say all of this stuff from a completely independent standpoint of, of, you know, this is a world-class press. It does not deserve to be treated in this way. And, um, it needs to be defended, uh, you know, by everybody at Stanford, but also everybody outside Stanford, because this, this is a, this is a, this is a real showdown, what we're seeing right now. This is a major attack on university presses. This is a major attack on the humanities and social sciences and the arts. That's what it is. Um, yeah, I think, I think, uh, you've kind of nailed it, Tom, um, in a very kind of comprehensive way. Um, I want to talk a little bit about what you guys, uh, collectively discover, uh, or unveil for, for people who are able to, uh, check out the, the web interface, um, so together you guys look um, over a couple centuries and you look at both kind of a, a bird's eye view of um, great relocation um, as well as kind of what we might think of as a, a micro history or a very localized history. Um, g- give us an overview of, of some of the things that you guys have discovered in terms of um, grave re- relocation, the motivations for doing this. Um, how a uh, place has changed over time because of this. Um, 
what what are some of the things people will discover uh, when looking through this project? Yeah, great. Um, well, I, I I I hope that if the first page that someone visits on the interface is the people page to see just just the cast that was involved in doing this, I I, I hope that the second and third will be the the essays by. Um, by Jeff Snyder Reinke and by Christian Ario. So Jeff Snyder Reinke uh, deals with the phenomenon of so-called um, uh, infant, well, of infant burial in the late imperial period. So during the Qing Dynasty, Christian Ario focused. So his, his so Jeff's canvas is, um, you know, is is uh, broadly speaking, sort of China proper. Um, if we if we think about it, so the scale is quite large. Christian Ario, who, as as everyone knows, um, is one of the foremost historians of, of of modern Chinese history, Shanghai in particular. So his canvas is the urban space of Shanghai itself, specifically in the late latter decades of the nineteenth century, and then into the Republican period um, in the you know first half of the twentieth century. So I I, I I don't want to speak on their behalf. I hope everyone will jump in and and see the um, you know what they're arguing and how they and how they do it i can, i can say a few insights that i know i found or i discovered along the way for my own essay which is about contemporary china really about the 90s 2000s and 2010s which is a very different time period than i'm used to um speaking about but uh well there are too many to list here but i think some would be uh as follows the it's accepted wisdom that major transformations in contemporary China are taking place in locales and in urban areas that uh, are, except for people that live in these areas or are deeply familiar with China, people have never heard of. So these are kind of second, third and fourth and fifth tier cent- urban center cities that are not household names in certainly in general awareness of China, but even within uh, scholarship about China. Um, you know, if you think about the major urban centers in China and ask someone to rattle off in their mind, what comes to mind, you know, they'll, they'll think of Beijing and Chongqing and Xi'an and et cetera, et cetera. Uh, they will quite not, they will quite likely not think of, um, I don't, and maybe and maybe Shenzhen because they they they've heard of the history of that in the reform and, and, and opening up era, but the thoughts will not turn to uh, uh, cities like Zhanjiang and uh, a number of others that have I listed them. Some some sundry people among your listeners may know it or may have heard of it, uh, but the vast majority will have not. And and while we've known this for a long time that there's something happening, the profound changes in China are happening. Um, outside of the the major urban centers uh, where we often kind of train our focus or focus our attention, um, but it's 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 been very difficult, at least for me, until I set out in this project to to actually explore what those transformations are um, and to sort of see them in real time. So. Uh, there are there are a number of examples in the essay, and I'll just invite the readers to explore them. I won't recount them completely here, but uh, there 
are a series of grave relocations that take place um, in Zhejiang province, in a part of Zhejiang province. And each one of these grave relocations is, in the grand scheme of things, compared to other sites, uh, quite small. So we're talking about a town where um, maybe 200 graves roughly have been relocated, another town where maybe 150, another where 300 or so. So on their own, none of these relocations would be something that probably anyone would spend a book writing about or even an article writing about. Uh, when one takes the time to build the database of re relocations and then map them in space, what you see is that these seven, these seven rather small relocations, when you plot them, when you map them out, actually form a kind of band of relocations, and that if you overlay a, um, if you overlay on the map a uh, a sort of color coded layer indicating population density. And this is true not only in Zhejiang in this one area where I hope that the listener will listeners will explore on the platform, uh, but elsewhere as well, that these relocations form a band right on the border of a higher versus lower population area. So we're actually able to sort of see in real time this population center about to erupt into another part, another adjacent or adjoining part of, of the province. Um, so, you know, cities moving into their peri-urban areas, um, et cetera, et cetera. And, you know, this is certainly doable uh, if you're an urban historian, an urban studies person uh, for one town or one city or one location. But any one location really isn't going to give you that global sense of the dynamism and transformation of China as a whole. And so in this bizarre irony, it turns out that one of, that one of the ways or one of the markers that you can follow in order to chart out and see in kind of real time the scope of these dynamic changes and transformations is by mapping the relocation of the dead. Because the relocation of grave sites and of bodies and human remains is consistently something that has to be done prior to the expansion of a city, the expansion of an infrastructure, etc. And so wherever, maybe not, you can't say like wherever a grave has been moved, we see a movement of population. But one could one could say that actually one could say that that this is what 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 we see when we watch grave sites being moved um, is the precursor to a set of transformations that are that are going to be very quick on the heels of those relocations and so um, you had asked before and I and I I just remembered that I didn't answer your question like how was this database built and I think that's worthwhile to point out. Um, so when grave relocation is conducted legally by kind of in accordance with regulations in China, um, it needs to be preceded by a public notice of grave relocation that gives local citizens an opportunity to, to be aware that a relocation is about to happen and also to, that they can have contact information where they can contact either a local government office, or maybe um, some party connected to a real estate development firm, whatever it might be, 
in order to contact them to lay claim to one or more of the grave sites in the affected area, and then to receive a stipend. This is, these, these stipends are extremely low. They never cover anywhere near all the costs involved, but at the very least to do this. And, and they typically have a certain deadline by which to do this. Now, these relocation notices are pu- published in local newspapers, and they're kind of like little classified ads. They, they're you know, maybe an inch squared on the page. Um, and they just show up, they just show up all over. So the, once I, it took a while to tap into and realize that mechanism, um, by which the state, again, when this is conducted legally has to issue notifications. And so the first three, four years of this project was simply reading thousands of these notifications and transcribing the data inside into um, into a very simple kind of Excel sheet. Um, so location, you know, province, uh, province, county, province, prefecture, county, if we knew the village, etc. Um, what was the reason cited? Uh, who, what contact information? What was the stipend? What was the deadline, etc. And these um, these uh, sources, these primary sources, are are quite powerful because they they not only um, well, I guess the easiest way to put it is that they contain a lot more information than we were even able to use on the platform because these are local newspapers and because they have to give a good explanation of where the graves are, they w- they, they would often read um, you know something to the following effect is that. All of the graves east of the orchard, north of such and such preschool, south of the reservoir, and west of such and such road, all of the graves in that area will be relocated, and you have to contact us by May 30th, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so if China did not prohibit you know, legally the, the access to kind of high-resolution maps of local areas, we would actually be able to tell pretty much exactly where we're talking about in time and in space. Um, Now, as probably many of your listeners know, China is very, very guarded about cartography. Um, These are, I mean, they're almost at the level of state secrets in certain set in certain cases. There is a officially endorsed uh, GPS offset to kind of um, degrade the resolution of, you know, of, of mapping technologies, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, but it's still there, and we recorded it, and it's in the database that people, the data set that people can download, um, you know, if they wanted to do a more local history of a particular place and time. The one thing that this that these data um, sources did not include um, is a sense of scale: how many graves are affected, because it just says all graves in a particular area. So that means that we know a grave relocation is going to happen. Um, or has happened, but we don't know how many um, grave sites were affected. In order to try to get at that kind of data, uh, we had to rely on news reports, government statistics, et cetera, et cetera, that would say, you know, in June of last year, 372 graves were relocated um, in such and such place in order to free up farmland or, or in order to build a preschool, whatever it might be. In some cases, we're able to, you know, match 
that something like that, an article of that nature with a grave relocation notice and say, okay, there is, there is a 99% confidence here that they're referring to the same relocation. And in some cases, um, we have uh, articles whose, um, that we can't necessarily map confidently onto a relocation. And we have relocation notices for which there is no easily discernible news report that gives us scale. So when people navigate the site, they're going to notice that um, we call them grave relocation events. And an event could be the relocation of a single grave site or as many as you know, t- tens of thousands of grave sites um, in, a, in, in one event. So this, uh, but there are going to be many, there are many points on the map that um, are of unknown scale. And then there are, there's another subset of data points in which the diameter of the circle is, is um, set equal to the scale of the number of graves relocated. So that's, you know, I think that's just the nature of humanistic data. And it's an interesting challenge that anyone doing digital humanities has, which is, you know, our data is just inherently um, uneven and, and has different kinds of scales. And therefore, we need platforms that are that are okay with that, that are sensitive to the fact that humanistic data is almost never smooth. Um, but yeah, yeah. <clears throat> um, well, Tom, it's it's a really fantastic project. Uh, you and your contributors have done an excellent job, both in your kind of uh, analysis of all this data and the kind of historical narrative that you guys uh, provide, uh, but also the uh, developers that you worked with uh, made a beautiful site. And you're right, it really does seem... Uh, intuitive and simple and easy, but so uh, rich at the same time. So it's it's really an excellent project. I hope uh, people that are interested in kind of doing any kind of visualization of de- uh, data or digital humanities more generally uh, will look at this as uh, uh, as one of, of many models to uh, emulate. Um, you've kind of uh, hinted at a couple different things that you've been working on. Um, uh, is there anything you want to tell us about that you have kind of uh, in the nearer future that we can expect from you? So I'm I'm sort of hard at work on five projects right now, and there are different sort of stages. <laughs> <laughs> um, let's see. So well, uh, so some some listeners might might know already that uh, the Chinese typewriter, which just came out on MIT Press. Uh, in 2017, there is that is the first of really a two-volume history, and the second book, the Chinese Computer, will um, pick up the story right at, uh, in the uh, right in the immediate aftermath of the Second World War, the advent of the Cold War, and will carry that story forward into the in the contemporary period, um, and that will also be coming out on MIT Press. Um, I am. Um, I have a, a uh, an ongoing project, I guess, that is still sort of without a home. It's um, and I'm excited to just continue working on it. Actually, that's that's what I'm on sabbatical this year for. It's called I've, I've nicknamed it Hot Metal Empire, and um, it is the story of. Well, I guess the central actors of the story are a group of early twenties. Um, women in um, the drawing office of the Brooklyn-based company Mergenthaler Linotype, uh, which in its day and age um, 
through the invention of hot metal composition, which is this new print technology that displaces, well, displaces movable type. In essence, it's the end of the movable type era at an industrial scale, um, but in which this company becomes one of the leading creators of fonts for um, Arabic, Hebrew, Cyrillic, um, all of these non-Latin fonts all around the world that are sold kind of as the software which comes with the machine when, when newspapers buy the, the linotype machine for their, for, their, for their newspaper publications, whatever it might be, in cities all around the world. Um, and uh, these young women and some young men, um, every day, uh, their job is to draw a different letter. And what, some letters are from the Latin alphabet, but some are from katakana, from hiragana, from Arabic, from Hebrew. And yet, uh, um, these uh, draftswomen and draftsmen don't don't read any of these languages um, except for English. And maybe here and there, they might know some familiarity with some. So it's a it's it's a it's sort of a history of design, um, but again, global design, and it connects with questions of language and technology. So um, that's uh, that's one project. Another one is um, I'm contracted with Cambridge University Press to to write um, for their series, the, the Concise History series, to write uh, the Modern China um, part of that series. And um, that's a really exciting challenge. And um, yeah, a few other, few other things here and there. Um, and I'll just, I'm, I'm excited to, you know, uh, I've been working on them, but I'm, but uh, I think once I get back to teaching after sabbatical, I've always found that teaching helps me write uh, because it, 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 it just puts me in the right headspace. Well, good luck with all of that, Thomas. It's certainly <laughs> Thanks. Thank you. going on. Um, and we certainly look forward to uh, your, your future work. So thanks uh, cool. for that. And thanks for making the time to, to talk about this wonderful project. Thanks very much. I hope you, uh, I wish you all best of luck with the rest of this series. And thank you for, you know, thank you for, uh, for your, uh, your series. I think it's really important to, to spread the word about new projects. And so keep doing what you're doing. That was my conversation with Thomas Mullaney, editor of the Chinese Deathscape, Grave Reform and Modern China, published with Stanford University Press in 2019. Thanks again for listening to new books in religion, and I hope you'll check out future episodes.